to go through the parables of Jesus, and uh, which was uh, something a little different for me. Uh, I've been doing this about 10 years, and I've gone through numerous books in the New Testament, um, but I've never gone through a book in the Old Testament. Um, but Genesis is, is, is something that I've always wanted to do. It's always been on my list. It's always a book that's fascinated me uh, just because of, I mean, it's, as we'll see as we begin to go through it, how much is actually in it. Um, it is just, it's just, it's astounding when you really go back. Now, let me say this. I, I went through Romans a few years ago, and it took me two years to go through 16 chapters of Romans. So some of you at this point might be in a panic, right? And you're thinking, 50 chapters, how long is this going to take? Is it going to take five years? Uh, no, we're not going to go a verse at a time. This is not one of the books that you can just go a verse or a few verses at a time. When you get to some of the sections, we're going to take them as sections. Um, and so I don't think it's going to take, uh, uh, I, I don't know how long it'll take. Um, you know, my guess is probably about a year and a half. And I said last week, that sounds almost odd, doesn't it? When you sit down on a Sunday and somebody says, we're starting something that's going to take us a year and a half, most of us think, I I can't do that. But sure you can. It just, you know, one Sunday rolls into the next and you look up one day and and you think, man, that was good, you know? So uh, anyway, it it won't take five years. So I want to start today with just an introduction. Um, So if you want to open your Bibles to Genesis 1-1, you can. We'll actually cover that verse next week. Um, because that verse right there, we could stay on it for, for months if we wanted to, but we'll get there next week. Today we're just going to start uh, with an introduction and kind of talk a little bit about the book in general. Uh, we'll talk about uh, kind of the outline or how the book is structured, and, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about evolution, uh, which obviously comes into play when we talk about Genesis. I want to start with the title of the book and how the book uh, got its uh, name. Now, one thing you need to understand, the Old Testament was first written, of course, in, in Hebrew. And, and in, the old, in the Hebrew, the first five books of the Bible weren't divided up. In other words, the first five books of the Bible, which we know today as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they didn't have those, they weren't divided like that in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, In fact, it was just one long book that the Jews called the Torah, which is Hebrew for the law. So when you hear a a, a Hebrew or a Jew say, refer to the law, they're actually referring to what we know as the first five books. Now, around the 3rd century, around 300 B.C., um, you remember we talked about this a while back, uh, the Jews had been scattered all over the world. Uh, At that time, Alexander the Great had conquered the the known world. Greek was basically the universal language because of that. And there was a lot of Hebrews, a lot of Jews that didn't speak uh, Hebrew anymore. And so some of the Jewish elders got together and said, you know, if we want these Jews to be able to read the Old Testament, we need to translate it into Greek. So around 300 B.C., they did exactly that. They uh, translated the Old Testament into Greek, and it's what's known as the uh, Septuagint. Now, it was during this translation that they made the decision to, to divide up the Torah, divide up those, that, the law, into five books, and they gave them names. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
and Deuteronomy. Now, in the Greek, these books are known as the Pentateuch, which basically means the fivefold book. But so, before, everybody with me? Before 300 BC, it was just one long book. Didn't it was just called the Law or the or the Torah? It wasn't divided up. It was only divided up when they translated into Greek in 300 BC. Now, in the Greek Septuagint, the first book of the Pentateuch, the first book of the five was called Genesis for creation or beginnings or origins. That's what the, we talk about it today. The genesis of something is the origin or the beginning or the creation of that. And of course that makes perfect sense because the book describes the creation, the beginnings of the origin of all things. Now, if you look at Genesis as a whole, it covers a history of approximately 2,369 years. Okay? Uh, that's basically the history that, that it um, covers. And we'll talk about that as we move through the book. Now, that's how it got its title. Who wrote it? Who wrote Genesis? Well, I want you to imagine for a minute, I want you to go back with me to about 1500 B.C. And you are the leader of about 2 million refugees You've just led these people out of Egypt. They've been in slavery for about 400 years. And you bring them out of this land. And you're about to go in, you bring them out of Egypt. You're about to go into Canaan. And this is a land that God has, has promised to you, promised to your, to your forefathers. And you send spies over into the land. And they come back and they say, man, you're not going to believe what's over there. There are, there are giants in this land. They're, they're way bigger than we are. And they live in these fortified cities, which I, I don't know how we're ever going to conquer those fortified cities. And by the way, they're all pagans, and they're, they're, they're so bad, we saw them offering their own children to their pagan gods. That, that was the report that, that came back. Now, you know that you've got to take these people. These people have got to go into that land. But by the way, you also know that you can't go, that God has already told you that you will die before they enter over into this land, but, but, but you want them to be able to go over and conquer and stay spiritually pure. So what do, you, what do you do? So what Moses does at that time is he sits down and he writes the Torah. Okay? In other words, he wants to give them the strength to go in and conquer that land. He wants them to remain morally and spiritually pure uh, to God. So Moses writes, sometime between leaving Egypt and going into Canaan, Moses sits down and writes the first five books of the Bible, what we know as the law or the, the Torah. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, first of all, nowhere in Genesis does it say, hey, I'm Moses and I'm writing this book, right? You're not going to see that anywhere uh, in Genesis. But it has been accepted basically not only over the centuries, but over the millennia, that Moses was the writer of the Torah and, and of Genesis. Now, how do we know that? Well, there's a number of evidences to, uh, that, that point that out. For example, I want you to remember, in the original Hebrew, it's all one long book. Everybody with me? It's not broken up. It's just called the Law or the Torah. And there are a number of passages in the Torah... Uh, that actually refer to Moses as writing it. Okay? Let me give you a few examples. Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book. 
Numbers 33.2, Moses wrote down their starting places by command of the Lord. Deuteronomy 31.9, then Moses wrote this what? The Torah. Moses wrote this law. Moses wrote this Torah and he gave it to the priests. So you see numerous... Uh, you see numerous things like that throughout those first five books referring to the fact that Moses wrote it down. In addition, when you get to the New Testament, both Jesus and the uh, apostles and the writers of the New Testament also affirm that Moses wrote the Torah. For example, Matthew 19.8, this is Jesus. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. He's referring to Deuteronomy, I believe, chapter 18. So he says Moses wrote that. In John 7, 19, Jesus says this, Has not Moses given you the Torah? Has not Moses given you the law? Remember, it's just one long book, right? Has not Moses given you the Torah? Has not Moses given you Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Mark 12, 26, and as for the dead being raised, this, again, this is Jesus. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Notice how Jesus calls it the book of Moses. He's referring to the Torah. In the passage about the bush, by the way, he's referring to Exodus 3. Have you not read? Have you not read? Has not Moses given you this? By the way, you can move on into Acts chapter 3 and 13, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 3. New Testament writers continually refer to the Torah as the writings of Moses, the book of Moses. So not only do we have Old Testament evidence that says that Moses wrote the Torah, we also have the New Testament also saying that Moses wrote the Torah. Um, so again, we, there, there's pretty good evidence that Moses wrote that. Now, most of you may be saying, well, now wait just a second. How can Moses write something that happened or, 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 or relate something that happened basically thousands of years before he was born. How, how, could he, how could he do that? Well, there's a couple of ways it could have happened. Number one, it could have come from texts that were passed down through the generations. For example, Adam could have wrote stuff down. Uh, uh, God could have been passed down to Methuselah and then to Noah and then on to Abraham and on down the, the line. Or it could have come through divine revelation. By the way, we know Moses goes up on the mountain and spends time with God, does he not? In fact, he spends so much time, he comes down, his hair is white, his face is glowing, people wouldn't even look at him. So he, we know God gave him the Ten Commandments. God could have just recited all of this stuff. Let me tell you, Moses, how this happened. Okay, so regardless of where, whether it came through divine revelation or it came through texts that were passed down from the forefathers, we know that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Moses would have wrote it down perfectly uh, and inerrantly and, and without error. Now, let's talk a little bit about the outline of the book as a whole. Nearly everybody agrees if you go read Genesis. How many people here have read Genesis? Okay, pretty much everybody's read it. If you think about it, it's really broken up into two sections. The first section is found in chapters 1 through 11. And this, these chapters basically focus on how everything goes bad. It starts out with creation. It talks about the fall of man and sin entering into the world. And, and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse, right? All the way down to the flood. 
and then after the flood, you still got sin, and it just gets, keeps getting worse and worse until finally you get the Tower of Babel in chapters 10 and 11, and everybody's, their languages are, are muddled, and they're spread all, all across the wor- world. That is in sections, or in chapters 1 through 11. That would kind of be the first chapter. So that's basically how everything is just going to pot, right? And, and then, by the way, the first division of the book covers about 2,000 years, roughly. Okay, And it's broken up by four events. You've got creation in chapters 1 and 2, the fall in 3 through 5, the flood in 6 through 9, and the dispersion at the Tower of Babel in, in 10 through um, 11. The next part of the book is chapters 12 through 50. And this covers only 350 years. Okay, But this section describes how God starts putting it all back together. So the first 11 chapters, it all falls apart. The chapters 12 through 50 is God's plan to put it all back together. And it's not char- the first 11 chapters are characterized by four events. The second section is characterized by four men, and that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, um, of course, Joseph. Now, let's talk a little bit about how important Genesis is. And I mentioned this at, at the beginning, and I, I want to just kind of stay on this for a minute. The Bible... By and large, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, and we could describe the Bible a lot of ways. But one way we can describe the Bible is the Bible is an account of God's activity in history, is it not? From the very beginning all the way up through, uh, 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 through, all the way through Acts and on into the early parts of the church, the Bible is all about how God is working in history with men. And if, if any of you have ever done any surveying, if you have to go out and survey a piece of land, a surveyor always has to have a starting point. They have to have a point of reference. They have to have a, an iron pen or a benchmark, something in the ground that says this is a corner, and I can start from that, and I can begin to go and lay out the property. Well, for us, Genesis is our benchmark. Genesis is our point of reference from which everything else comes out of it. It, it really is an amazing book. It's what I would call a foundational book. And what I mean by that is imagine for one second that you don't have Genesis. Just imagine for a minute we don't have Genesis. Do you understand how difficult it would be to understand the rest of the Bible if you took Genesis out? By the way, some of it's just little things. You ever wonder why we have a seven-day work week? Without Genesis, you'd have no clue. But see, in Genesis, we know. Everybody with me? I mean, sometimes it's just little things. But if you actually took out the, the basis of, of much of the knowledge that we have about God, about the world, about civilization, about starts in, in Genesis, without it, it would be extremely difficult to interpret the Bible. In fact, the other writings of the Bible are basically inseparably bound up with, with Genesis. If you think of think of the major themes of scripture as rivers and they kind of start in genesis and as they move through the bible they get wider and deeper for example let's talk about marriage in the beginning it says god made you know we got adam and eve and god joined them together and 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 genesis says therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife right that's kind of the start but when you get to the new testament what does paul say paul says let me tell you a mystery that's been hidden since the beginning of time. And it's about marriage. 
He says marriage is about Christ in the church, did he not? See, it starts in Genesis, but as you flow through the Bible, you begin to get revealed more and more about these great doctrines of the, of the Bible. See, they all start in Genesis. One writer said this, The roots of all subsequent revelation are planted deep in Genesis, and whoever would truly comprehend that revelation, you've got to start in Genesis, because that's where it begins to, to flow. Let me give you an example, the doctrine of redemption. We'll take that as an example. We're first introduced to the doctrine of redemption in Genesis chapter 3. And this is, this is when, when God says, He, talking about the offspring of the woman, shall bruise you on the head, talking about Satan, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now that, at that point, that's basically talking about redemption, how God is going to work a plan and He's going to redeem and save uh, save the world, right? But at, at the very beginning, it's very general. It's very undefined. We, we don't really know what that means. But as you began to move through Genesis, we begin to learn more things. For example, we learn that that redemption is going to come through Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12. As we move on down the line, we find it's, it's going to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. It's going to come through Jacob, not Esau. And finally, we, we, we learn in Genesis 49 that that, the, that that redemptor is going to come out of the tribe of Judah. Everybody see how it gets... You, you, it starts out with a kind of a vague saying, and as you start to move through the Bible, it gets a little bit deeper, and you get a little more revelation, and a little more, and a little more. But it all starts in, in Genesis. As you move through, we find out eventually that uh, we, we learn the Messiah is going to be the offspring of David. That's in 2 Samuel. We learn in Micah that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We just learn more and more details. This is known as progressive revelation. The Bible tells us a little more and a little more and a little more as we move through the Bible. But it all starts in Genesis. We find the same thing, by the way, and this just amazes me. When we get to the New Testament, and I know a lot of people that st stay in the New Testament. Any of y'all like that? I know some people that just read the New Testament. They don't read much of the Old Testament at all. But what happens is when you get to the New Testament, you find the New Testament writers referring back to Genesis again and again for the foundation of their theology. For example, here is Jesus referring to the Pharisees' question on the legality of divorce. In other words, the Pharisees want to know, is it okay that, that, that a man can just divorce his wife whenever he wants to? which is basically the way it was in, in that day. I want you to watch what Jesus said. Mark 10, 2 through 9. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he said, well, what did Moses tell you? What does the Torah say? What does the law say? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That was their, that was their law. Now I want you to watch what Jesus... Now remember, Jesus is teaching about marriage and divorce. Watch what he does. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, and then he begins to quote scripture, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When they ask him a question about divorce and marriage, Jesus goes to where? He goes to Genesis. He says this is what God intended from the very beginning. See, when he's teaching on marriage, he goes all the way back to Genesis. That's, that's amazing. Let me give you another one. Paul does the exact same thing 
uh, when he's teaching on the roles of men and women in the church. For example, he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, and he says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And you might say, well, why, did, why would you say that, Paul? Is that a cultural thing? Surely that's just a cultural thing, right? That's the way it is in that day. It's not the way it is today. Why would you say that, Paul? Paul says, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. See, when, when he has to set, when he has to give a reason for saying that, what does he go back to? He goes back to Genesis. He goes back to creation because he said this is God's plan. This is God's design. This is the way God designed it from the beginning. It's not cultural. It doesn't change with culture because it goes all the way back to, to Genesis. That's just amazing to me how you watch these writers refer back to Genesis, the way God intended it from the beginning. As, you go, as we go through Genesis, I think you're going to be amazed to find out that Genesis contains the broad outlines of pretty much every major area of theology. We can go from the, the, the teaching on marriage to the teaching on salvation to the teaching on grace to you name it. It all starts in Genesis. A.W. Pink said this, We have in germ form almost all of the great doctrines which are afterwards fully developed in the books of Scripture which follow. Basically, when you get the New Testament, there's nothing in the New Testament you'll find that you can't go back to Genesis and it basically find the germ form or basically the foundation for that, for that teaching, which, again, which I think is just amazing. Now, how do we interpret Genesis? Well, how you, what you get out of Genesis basically depends a lot on the attitude that you bring to it. And I want to point out two methods that we will avoid at all costs, how a lot of people interpret uh, Genesis that we won't do. See, there are many modern-day theologians teaching in our schools and, and teaching in our uh, Bible uh, uh, colleges and things like that. And they are willing to admit that the Bible contains truth, but they will not admit that the Bible is the truth. Are you with me? They'll say, sure, it has some truth here and there, but you can't, you can't believe the whole thing. See, in the end, they will not recognize it as inspired and inerrant. And what they do is they go into the Bible and they try to they read it and they say, well, that sounds true, but that don't sound true. And they actually try to separate what they think is true from what they think is fiction. This is called demythologizing scripture. By the way, we've talked about this before. Uh, Thomas Jefferson. Okay? Thomas Jefferson was, was did this very th same thing. Go home. Uh, uh, or bring it up on your iPad or your phone later, Google the Thomas Jefferson Bible. It's, it's displayed in the Smithsonian. Don't, if anybody ever tells you Thomas Jefferson was a godly man, don't believe all that. Thomas Jefferson did not, he believed Jesus was a good man, but he didn't believe he was a son of God. He didn't believe in miraculous. So he literally went into his Bible, and he, anything he didn't think was true, like when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, Anything where he saw him uh, healing a lame man or the opening a blind eye, he literally cut it out. So at the end, he had a Bible that had things that everything he thought was true was in the Bible. Everything he didn't think was true, he'd cut out. It's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. It's in the Smithsonian. See, that's what a lot of people do today. Man, you can't believe that. That don't sound right. That, let's take that out. It's called demythologizing Scripture. See, when you do that, see... 
man is no longer under the authority of the word. Man becomes the authority over the word. You start picking and choosing what you want to what you want to believe, what you want to obey. A lot of people out there like that. We won't do that. I believe that Bible is the Word of God. But I may not understand it. I may not get it, but I still believe it. And I'm not ever going to go into that Word and say, well, I, don't think, I think this is true and that's not true. We'll never do that. Another thing that we won't do is what's called the allegorical approach. Now, how many of you over the years have ever heard a preacher or a teacher get up tell a story from the Old Testament, David and Goliath, something like that, and they tell the story, and they immediately reach into that and grab some spiritual meaning. Anybody ever seen that? Raise your... <laughs> that happens over and over and over and over. Now, here's the problem with, with that. That's called the allegorical approach, that we look at things as an allegory, and we try to figure out what the spiritual meaning of it. Here's the problem. The difficulty is that the spiritual meaning can be different with every teacher or every preacher. What you get out of it and what, what Irwin gets out of it and what Scooter gets out of it, and what I, it, it can be completely different. And by the way, the more spiritual you are, the more meanings you can get out of it. Are you with me? Guys, that's very dangerous. Very dangerous. That's, that's also known as what this verse means to me. I, I'm not worried about what this verse means to me. I want to know what it meant when it was written. That's what I want to know. I want to know what God meant from it. So we're going to be very careful of not trying to pull spiritual meanings out of these things. We're going to find out, what did God, why did he write it? Why is it there? What does it mean? Okay, that's where we're going to, we're going to go. Um, so how do we avoid all this? How do we avoid of, of picking and choosing? How do we avoid of reading a story and trying to, you know, just saying, well, what's the spiritual meaning? Well, I think the very first verse makes extremely clear how you have to approach Genesis. This is the first verse. We all know it. We can probably all quote it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let's be very frank. Either that verse explains it all, or that verse explains nothing at all. Right there in the very beginning, it, it, it's just, it just hits you in the face. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Either you believe that or you don't. Either that explains everything, that explains why you're here this morning, or it explains absolutely nothing. There's a Harvard professor by the name of Harlow Shapley. He's dead now. but He said this, Some people piously proclaim, in the beginning, God, but I say, in the beginning, hydrogen. You see, he didn't believe God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't believe that verse. He believed that there was some hydrogen gas that combined with some other gases and out of this cesspool of all these chemicals, this, this thing walked out or something. I don't know what they believe. But let me tell you, that is the choice. Are you with me? That is your choice. You, you cannot be neutral when you come to Genesis 1.1. There is no fence. There is no middle ground. It, it's, don't, don't think of a field where there's a fence and I can have one leg on this side of the fence. No, there's that choice and then there's a huge chasm and there's that choice. You're either over there or you're over there. You either believe that God created the heavens and the earth or you believe that chance created the heavens and the earth. It's one or the other. There, there is no, no middle ground. Either God is the source of everything or he's a source of nothing. 
you, you got to make your, your choice here. And Genesis 1-1, as we'll see next week, is a statement that forces you to choose. We all, growing up, read books that all started out, once upon a time, did we not? And when you open a book and you read a statement that says, once upon a time, what do you know about that? It's a fairy tale. It's fiction. It's made up. We know that. But see, Genesis 1-1 is completely different. It doesn't say once upon a time. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That statement is authoritative. That statement is declarative. It says this is the way it is. And you either believe it or you don't believe it. I said this last week or a couple weeks ago. The claims of this verse are very much like the claims made by Jesus. See, you, you cannot call Jesus a good man. You, you cannot do that. You can't say, well, he, like Thomas Jefferson, I believe Jesus was a good man. I believe Jesus was a great teacher. No. He was either God, he was either who he said he was, or he was crazy. He was a lunatic. He was, by the way, he was a fake and a fraud and a swindler. He was one or the other. There is no middle ground. You've got to choose, folks. You can't just be in the middle. Yeah, Jesus was a good man. No. No. If he, if he, come up, if he says, I have the power to forgive sin. I have the power to forgive sin. And I'm going to show you by raising this man up. Listen. He either has the power to forgive sin, and he is God, or else he's a lunatic. He's a, he's a cheat, a swindler. Make your choice. Choose this day who you will serve, but get out of the middle. There is no middle ground with, with Jesus. He deserves a crown or a cross, one or the other. You see, in the same way, it is that same thing with verse 1 of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He either did or he didn't. It, it, the source of everything is God or the source of nothing is, is God. See, that verse claims authority and it claims truth, and you've got to make up your mind. For when you read that verse, you either read on expecting a revelation from God Himself, or you read on like it's just another myth. I mean, you've got to make your choice. Job 38, 4 through 7 says this, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? What's the point? See, the point is nobody was there. Adam wasn't there. You weren't there. Moses wasn't there. See, nobody was there. There's only two viable options when you read Genesis 1-1 and the rest of the book. It is either a product of divine revelation... Or it is a product of human imagination. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground. It, it's one or the other. And if it's the former, by the way, if it's, if it's just made up stuff from some, the mind of some man, then read it like you would read the Sunday comics and move on. Because that's all it's worth. It's trash. It's just fiction. It's myth. But if it's divine revelation, and you and I, you and I better get on our knees and submit ourselves to the God that created us. Make up your mind. Choose who you're going to serve. Get on one side or the other, because there is no middle ground. So I'm going to tell you, we will come in this study 
to, to Genesis as a book of divine revelation. I believe it's all telling the truth, every last word of it. And, and I'll, I'll try to interpret it literally. I'll, I'll try to interpret it in the customs and the, the ways of that time so we can understand what was said. You know, I say this all the time. You cannot understand what a verse means today until you understand what it meant then. You can't. I was thinking about that this week. I was reading an article on something, and this popped in my mind. Paul says, when he gives a list of people that will not inherit, inherit the kingdom of God, he says, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I began to think about that. Well, if you got in there today, and you just try to interpret it in light of today, well, sexually immoral, what does that mean? A lot of people don't think... Are you with me? Do you understand how sexually immoral changes from culture to culture? See, if you want to know what that means, you've got to go back and know what it meant then. Because Paul was writing to a people at that time. So you've got to go back to them and figure out what it means. And then we know what it means uh, for us. And we'll do that in the book of Genesis. Now, I've got a few minutes left. I want to talk about evolution. If you come to this study... <clears throat> and you're looking for me to deal with evolution, you will be disappointed. I'll just tell you right off the bat. I will not spend a lot of time on evolution. I'll, ha I'll mention it some here and there, but this is not going to be a study of evolution or refuting evolution. There are two reasons why. Here's the first reason. For me to go and deal with evolution is time spent not dealing in the Bible. You see, the fact is, I'm not an expert in, in science. I'm not an expert in evolution. And, and all the information is out there, and I could go home tomorrow morning, and I could get on the computer, and I could start to spend hours studying evolution and studying what the scientists say and studying all this stuff. But every hour I spend on that is an hour I'm not studying the Bible. And to be honest, that doesn't interest me at all. I want to study the Bible. That's why I'm here. That's what thrills me. That's what drives me. That's what motivates me is Bible, not, not, not evolution. See, the fact is, I want to know what the Bible says. The fact, I believe this Bible was written, it's divine revelation of the God who was there. Right? I, I don't want to know what some scientist thinks happened. I want to know what happened. And I believe this is the place to, to find that out. By the way, for thousands of years, evolution didn't exist. It didn't exist in the 1800s when Darwin came up with it. What, what do you, didn't, you think people studied Genesis and got stuff out of it for all those years? Sure they did. So I'm just not going to deal with it very much at all. Here, here's a second reason. Evolution is a useless theory that only an outright fool would ever believe in. It's, it's, it's useless. Why would I waste my time? Every time I think of evolution, I always think of that picture. I don't know how well y'all can see that. That's a turtle on a fence post. Let me tell you, when I look at that picture, I don't know where that is. I don't know what time of day it was. I don't know what year it was taken. There's a lot I don't know. But I can look at that picture, and there's one thing I know without a shadow of a doubt. Anybody want to tell me what it is? Somebody put that turtle on that fence post. I know, do you know that? It, come on. Now, now, you may say to me, well, Derek, couldn't a, um, couldn't a tornado come along and, and, and swirled around and, and by some chance in a million put the turtle? Yes. 
But that's my point. It takes action. It takes force, not chance. Something has to move on that turtle and deposit him on the top of the fence. It's, it's obvious. And to think that that turtle just appeared out of thin air, it's stupid. It's stupid. It's ludicrous. Why would you waste your time on something like that? Even Darwin said the same thing. Listen, this is, this is him himself. He said, to suppose that the eye... I've told this story a hundred times. I remember when, when Micah, my youngest son, played baseball, and I'd, he, we'd go out and I'd hit him fly balls out in the yard. And when he was a little boy, I mean five and six years old, he, he, I mean, think about this. We don't, we, every day goes by, we don't think about stuff like this, but this is how amazing creation is. I could hit him a ball, and he, he probably, I mean, he didn't know anything about math. He didn't know, are you with me? But his eye could read that fly to that ball, it could calculate the apex, it could calculate the speed, and he could go to this point right here and catch it. How does that happen? What, what kind of... What, that is incredible. And this is what Darwin said, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus of different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberrations, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. You are correct. That is absurd in the highest degree. It is ridiculous, and I will not spend time trying to refute a ridiculous argument. It just makes no sense to me. It just doesn't interest me at, at all. In the end, we are here to study Scripture. I have been asked to teach Scripture, not evolution, and not even to refute evolution. And I don't want to get sidetracked from that. See, the fact is, if we could come in here and we could spend weeks on that, on the turtle on a fence post, and that's weeks where... Are you with me? I don't know how much time we got, guys. I don't. I don't know. But I make every day count. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Redeem the time because the days are evil. I don't want to spend any time on a useless theory when I can spend it on the truth. So I don't want to disappoint you if you were expecting that, but I just will not allow myself to go there. Scripture is intended for us to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His Father God. I'm not gonna, I don't want to grow in the knowledge of Darwin. That's, that's just not my... It doesn't interest me. This is a great quote. I want to leave you this. B, uh, Dr. B.B. Uh, B. Warfield said this. And listen, this is so awesome when I ran across this. He said, a glass window stands before us. We can raise our eyes and see the glass. We can note its quality. We can observe its defects and even speculate on its composition. Or we can look through the glass on the land and the sea and the sky beyond it. You see, there are two ways of looking at the world, he says. We can see the world and absorb ourselves in the wonders of nature. That's the scientific way. Or we can look right through the world and see God behind it. That is the religious way. The scientific way of looking at the world is, is not wrong any more than the glassmaker's way of looking at the window. Those, those ways have their uses. But listen to this. Nevertheless, the window was placed there not to be looked at but to be looked through. Well, I love that. 
The window is put there not to be looked at, but to look through. And we fail in our purpose unless we look through that window, allowing our eye to rest not on the window, not even on nature, but on its God. You see, at the end of the day, Genesis is a window. It's a window. And you can come to it and you can open up and, and it says on the first day. And you say, well, now how, 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 does that, you know, how does that go with all... And you miss God. You miss, verse 1, in the beginning, God created. God said, let there... See, Genesis is all about God. You want to know what Genesis is about? It ain't the creation of the earth. It's about God. Let's look through the window and see Him. That's what we want to do in this, in this study. See, I'm going to be honest with you. Genesis is not written for the scientist. It's not written for the glassmaker. It's written that, so that the man and woman of faith will look through the glass of the account and see the Creator. That, that's what Genesis is for. Listen, in the end, creationism, the belief that God created the heavens and the earth, is always a matter of faith. And by the way, that's not me saying that. That's the Bible. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith. By faith we understand those things. See, the fact is, if you're a Christian, you walk by faith, not by what you see. I walk by faith, not by sight. The writer of Hebrews says it's by faith you understand God created the heavens and the earth. By faith you understand He did that. All the stuff that you see here today was come out of stuff that didn't exist before. God did that. Not chance. Not whatever. Listen, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm very eager to start this study. There, there is some amazing stuff. But I'm telling you, in order to get what we should out of it we have to look beyond the glass beyond the account to see the creator of it all i want to give you a couple of examples real quick before we close i want you for a minute to consider the enormity of the universe i don't know if any of you know this how big the universe is if you could travel at the speed of light which is 186,000 miles per second which is pretty quick right? It would take you eight minutes to go from here to the sun. Now, the sun is 193 million miles. Everybody with me? So you, if you could travel at the speed of light, you could get to the sun in eight minutes. That's 193 million miles. Let me tell you, that is, that's booking, right? Now, listen to this. To go from the sun to the center of the Milky Way, which is our galaxy, would take you 33,000 years. The Milky Way belongs to a group of 20 galaxies known as the local group. To cross the local group would take you 20 million years. The local group belongs to the Virgo cluster, which would take you 500 million years to cross. And to cross the entire known universe would take you 20 billion years at the speed of light. It's mind-boggling how big the universe is. But listen, did you know it's still growing? It's still expanding. Until recently, cosmologists, these are the guys that study the universe, assumed that the rate of the universe's expansion was slowing down. You see, everybody used to, scientists used to say the universe was eternal. But back in the 60s, they discovered at that time what's called the Big Bang, 
right? They, they, they realize, oh, now we can tell there was a beginning. Uh, duh, says it right here, right? But what happened, they said the universe is like an explosion. If you ever watch an explosion, everything does what? It expands. And the universe expanded, and it just kept expanding, and it kept expanding, and it's still expanding even today. And they thought, well, over time, it'll slow down because of gravity, right? Everything, just like an explosion eventually peters out, they thought the universe will slow down. However, current research indicates the universe will probably expand to eternity. Now, I say all that to say this. See, you and I, and this just, man, this gets me. That was all happened when God spoke a word. Can you imagine how powerful he must be? Can you imagine how powerful the word is that he can say, let there be, and that thing creates, and it's still going today? What, what, what kind of God is he? that can do something like that with the power of the spoken words. That's what I'm saying. When we look at the universe in the, in the expanse, see, a lot of people say, well, it makes no sense that the universe would be this big and we're just this little P. How can that be? But it is. <laughs> That's all for, for us. This is all part of His plan. That's what the Bible says. What a God He must be. See, this is what I was talking about earlier. Look past the window. Look past the fact that the universe is enormous and the fact that it's still expanding and see the God that spoke it into existence. See, when you see Him, then you fall on your knees and say, man, I want to know that guy. I want to I I I know Him. What a God He must be. Let me give you one more example. There was a well-known scientist in the 1800s by the name of Herbert Spencer. He died, I think, in 1903. In his career, he was known for one great discovery. That's what all scientists want. If they can just find one thing to get their names in the book. He made one great discovery, one notable contribution. He discovered that all reality, everything that exists in the universe, falls into one of five categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. In other words, everything in this universe has to be in one of those categories. It has to be a part of time, a force, an action, a space, and a matter. In other words, nothing exists outside of those categories. Now, he discovered that in the late 1800s, okay, which was a pretty astounding discovery at the time. I want you to listen to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's the force. Created, that's the action. The heavens, that's the space. And the earth, that's matter. It's all right there in Genesis 1.1. What, what scientists didn't discover till the 19th century is sitting right there in the Bible in Genesis 1.1. See, he's amazing. And this book is going to show us him, I believe, in a way that we've never seen him before. Or at least remind us of who he is that maybe we haven't been reminded in a long one. I look forward, very much forward, as I hope you do, to the book of Genesis. Not so much just to study another book, because again, it's going to learn, it's going to teach us more about uh, Him. Let's pray. Father,